Borada, a Cloisto e Fully Scored episode 40. Earlier this week was St David's Day, a celebration that our listeners from the Land of Song might have celebrated. This episode too has a Welsh flavour to it, with three of our five guests living or having lived in Wales. Stunningly beautiful, full of unique culture and heritage, and renowned all around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Frost, and I guess you could probably say the same about Wales too. Later in this episode, we'll have three guests exploring the delights of Arid Island Album, and we're joined by former Wrexham inhabitant Jonathan Evans, now bandmaster at the Sail Corps, as he speaks about perhaps one of the most loved and revered pieces of music in the entire Salvation Army repertoire. But first, we head to South Wales, on the precipice of the valleys to Cardiff, as we speak to bandmaster and cornet extraordinaire Carl Saunders. Well, Carl, thank you ever so much for joining us on Fully Scored. It's great to be chatting to you on the back of a successful concert with a household troops band in Cambridge, uh, celebrating the 90th birthday of your predecessor as bandmaster John Mott. It was great to have a packed hall for the event, wasn't it? Oh, it was lovely. It was a great night and a great day, really, celebrating old Motti's 90th birthday. And he, he loved it. Um, it was Jan, his wife, who organised the day and the concert and getting everybody there. And it was just lovely. Um, I mean, John's obviously, the, the band is is John's band and we're carrying on his, his good work, really. But to see the, the packed hall and the atmosphere and every, everybody celebrating... Yeah, it was a really lovely, a lovely evening and and a, and a great day together. Yeah, enjoyed it very much. So you're bandmaster of the Household Troops Band. For those that might not know, uh, and for those that didn't know, they do now. How long have you been bandmaster of the troops for? I took on the troops uh, immediately when uh, John retired. So that was October, I think, in two thousand and ten. Um, so I was already he kind of. A, uh, made me his deputy bandmaster for I don't know three or four years before that, and then John said with with some notice that he was going to retire at that point towards the end of twenty ten, and um, I was asked if I would take on the role, and um, it was my privilege, pleasure, joy, whatever you want to call it, to um, to take that on. John's obviously a difficult act to follow, and a very unique act to follow. But uh, enjoyed it all. Yeah, it's really good. Were you nervous following in those footsteps? I guess anyone that knows a household troops band, no one will remember its original form. But since it was reformed in '85, everyone will have known it as John's Band. Were you nervous about that? No, um, call me stupid. I wasn't. I wasn't nervous or apprehensive in any way. I was looking forward to it. I. I, I know. I would like to think that there's nobody that knows that band better than I do, haven't, haven't been. There are some that know it equally as well, but nobody that knows it better uh, than I. So I, I know what's entailed. I understand the uniqueness of the band and what it takes to try and control that band in every way, which is a big job by itself. So, no, I, I was just um, looking forward to it. John was very encouraging. The guys in the band were very encouraging. Um, and it, it, to be honest, it just felt a natural kind of step at the time, really, that uh, for me to take that on. Um, and it was my thrill, um, and it's been so far for the last 12 and a half years, and will continue, hopefully, uh, to be for quite some time yet. So you said you know the band very well and what it entails. 
you were one of the founding members in 85, I believe, or of the Reform Band, as we talked about. But what was it like being part of that original band? I know in early episodes with John Mott, we heard about his uh, perception and what it was like for him. But what was it like for you having this scratch band formed and being asked to be part of it? So in 1985, I was a young kind of 18 year old. I was probably, I think I was the youngest in the band. And um, again, as history would um, tell us, the band was at that time was reformed. John's idea got the go ahead to put it all together from uh, Norman Bearcroft at the time. Um, and part of John's main kind of strengths is if he wants something doing, he will he will do it. So with all the organising that, that needed to be done, he got that done. And he pulled the band together predominantly from the A band of that year's, as it was called then, National Salvation Army National School of Music from Common Hall. So I was there, that was only my kind of second year, I think, um, there. And that's where the the mainstay of the band came from. So I was young. I was I didn't know that many people at that stage, especially all the kind of, you know, the big noisy London kind of guys who kind of seemed to rule the roost in those days. Um, so just as a little kind of fairly naive and green Welsh boy from the valleys in Cardiff uh, to go along and join it, that was a bit daunting at the time. I do remember that feeling of being out of my depth potentially, but confident in my musical skills I have to say not not overconfident but confident enough um so I just jumped into it did not want to miss an opportunity like that and still to this day grateful to John for inviting me to be part of the band back then uh and it was a great looking back on my life so far a great experience a great I I, I think it was about 10 days that initial uh initial tour in 85 Sleeping in uh, Salvation Army halls, finding the most comfortable place, often the mercy seat. There's the only bit with carpet on in those days um, to sleep. And and don't forget, we're going back to 1985, so the best part of 40 years, a lot of Salvation Army halls weren't as luxurious as, as they are these days, especially with the, the bathroom facilities. So if you can imagine 30 guys queuing up for, for one kind of sometimes outside uh, toilet, it was it was quite uh, quite a memorable in every way kind of kind of trip, but but great. It was great memories. It was fabulous. Excellent. And uh, would that be your highlight then, waiting for that one cubicle, or perhaps having toured the world at many points with the band, <laughs> and certainly the UK? Have you got any other highlights from your time in the troops as a player and as a bandmaster? Playing with the troops, lots of highlights. Uh, I mean, we travelled. Before I took on the band, uh, lots of places, America, uh, around the UK, did Norway. Um, so lots of highlights. I lo- enjoyed lots of solo playing with the band. I mean, John would always put me up <laughs> as, as a soloist. So, you know, on a tour, you just get, you've got 10 days, 10, at least 10 festivals, 10 concerts, you're up every night. So that's great for, a, for any kind of soloist to have that experience, to just get up every night I just have to play and test yourself. I I did enjoy that very much of just getting up and testing myself as a player. But you know, the main thing was just the, the camaraderie, uh, the friendships, the fellowship of that of every year's band. Because sometimes it's quite different from year to year. Uh, the troops, but the the whole kind of ethos and the feeling inside the band stays the same. So if I've got one endearing memory, it's just that really the fellowship and the social side and the supportiveness. Uh, of the band 
rather than one particular occasion, really. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And it's great to hear a little snapshot about what being the band entails and a bit about the band. Uh, but for perhaps our international listeners that don't know as much about the Household Troops, or even some of our UK listeners, uh, you can hear a little bit more in episode 12 where we had John Mott on speaking about the band and reformation and the history of the band, if you wish to go and listen to that. But Carl, I want to ask you... What is it about the Household Troops band that is so unique in your viewpoint? There's a tricky one because it is quite difficult to describe, really. I mean, you know because you play in the band, so you'll get that feeling and you play in other groups as well. And in a way, every group is unique, um, but it's what brings that uniqueness through. That what the, I think the uniqueness of the Household Troops band uh, is the ability to communicate and engage... Um, with the public and that's whether we, we make a point and John started this that you know when as much as we can when we do a, a concert the festival we will also go and play outside we'll march we'll attract attention on purpose I mean that was one of the main ideas of using the helmets that we wear again was to be a, a talking point to attract attract attention to almost lure people in, I guess, to come and see us, to listen to us, to be different, to dare to be different. Um, there's no other Salvation Army band that wears helmets. Uh, thank the Lord, most people probably say. Um, but that that's one of the reasons, is, is to be... And that's one of the reasons that makes it unique, obviously, in a practical sense, is, is the helmets. But but the ability to, to go out in the street, to communicate... The repertoire that we play, whilst obviously based very much on the Salvation Army repertoire, we do also use a lot of music that is non-Salvation Army. Um, a lot of it, obviously, with um, good, positive thoughts behind it. But some just general populist music that we play, again, to try and attract people in. Um, and then we can kind of bring the message that we really want to bring across to them. Having, having made people feel comfortable, perhaps at first... Uh, and then bring the folks in to listen to the message that we've got to bring. Um, and that's whether that's out on the street marching, in the open air, or when we come back to um, to the hall on, on the festival. Uh, again, you, you, the band, I think, and we try to be as communicative as possible and as I say, engaging as well as entertaining. So I think that all-round ability to um, to bring the message out in a... Uh, I don't know, in a practical kind of sense, is, is what, uh, is, what the, is the uniqueness of the band. So now perhaps on to one of the trickiest questions I've got lined up for you today. Oh dear. In your vision, what do you think the future of the Household Troops band looks like? Yeah, it's a good question, because we want the band to carry on as long as, as, long as we can. And, and it does have a whole set of problems that that aren't insurmountable, but we have to get through just the logistics, the guys and the girls and the band are coming from all over the UK uh, and Scotland and Ireland sometimes as well. So just getting everybody together is is difficult. They tend to play in the busiest Salvation Army bands as well. So trying to get the whole band the same every um, concert is, is, is tricky. But that's not insurmountable. We'll, we'll get there with that one. Um, I mean, finances aren't great. We're not financed at all. So to everybody that runs a band of any description will know it costs quite a lot of money to to transport. So that's something that we've got to work out as well, the, the financial logistics. 
of everything. A very practical issue, but something that we have to kind of think about. But that aside, um, the band will continue to function. The band will continue to uh, play in concert. And the band will very much continue to play outside to bring our special, unique message to the people. That will be at the forefront of whatever we do, making that making that witness as a Salvation Army band. And trying to, as much as possible, modernise things to try and be at the rather the the the, the leading edge of, of of Salvation Army banding um you know the perhaps innovative that, that's what I'd like to get is more to be more as much uh of of a, a as an innovative group as we possibly can perhaps trying different things um approaching things in a different way um something that I try to put into my just core band uh, mastership as well is is let's not just do something because that's always the way that we've that we've done it you know try and try and look at different things so i guess but a lot of it is is basically carry on the tradition of what we've got so those are the ground rules the ground rules that john set up for the band that we march that we make a witness that we stand on street corners uh that we entertain definitely that we attract people that we engage that we communicate and also that when we play and we perform we do that to the very best of our ability with the limitations that we've got. Not, I don't mean personnel limitations. I mean, mostly rehearsal <laughs> kind of limitations and getting everybody together. So, yeah, I mean, if I could, if I could move forward in one way, it would perhaps be to try and, as I said, um, perhaps a little bit more innovative in the way that we, that we bring things forward. That's great. Thanks for that. You mentioned earlier that uh, John often got you on your feet as a soloist with a band, and I believe you might be the only trooper, though correct me if I'm wrong, that's done a whole uh, solo CD with the band, Going Solo. Um, how did that project come about? I was back in, um, towards the end of 2004, I was invited to go as a cornet soloist um, to Australia, which is a really nice opportunity. Um, for, I don't know, it was a week or so playing solos around, around in and around the Sydney uh, area. And so it was kind of suggested to me it might be a good idea to, you know, um, take a solo CD with you. Um, and um, I asked John if he would be happy for the troops to be the band that would bring the accompaniment to that and get together and do a recording. And John, before I finished the question, said yes, basically. Um, so... Um, that that's what happened. We we pulled it together really quickly. It was as good as I, as I could have made it in that kind of time. Really, it's hard work recording a solo CD in a few hours. Essentially, it was good fun, great experience for me. I mean, I'd, I'd recorded a lot of individual solos on troop CDs and with core band and other things, but not to do a whole CD in that kind of time is 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 quite a challenge, really, both for the soloist and for and for the band. And so, as again you've alluded to, you've been a soloist all around the world with the Household Troops Band and also in your own right. Have you got any highlights or moments perhaps where you've been stood up in front of a band playing something you really had to think, oh, I've got to pinch myself here, is this sort of real? When I look back, you, you when I knew what I thought you were going to ask me, I kind of um, looked back and thought what I'd, what I'd been able to do in the past and, and I was... I, kind of couldn't believe it really I, i've been very well it turns out when i look back i've been very fortunate um to have the opportunities that i've had as a as a cornet soloist both within 
Salvation Army world and, and in the kind of outside, as we call it, contesting world as well. Um, but mostly as a Salvation Army corner player. So um, I guess I've been lucky to do all what would be perceived as the the big kind of UK Salvation Army gigs. <laughs> One of so, um, like the Enfield pre-contest festival, I was soloed in that, Hendon Highlights. Um, the big one, I guess, was um, the Bandmaster and Songster Leaders Councils, which is what um, Gospel Arts for, used to be called before it was called Gospel Arts. That was back in 1998 uh, in the Royal Albert Hall with the, with the um, International Staff Band. That was a you know that was a, a pinch me moment I guess walking out on stage as a soloist and that and that year um, Pasadena songsters were there as well um, and the Albatore was it was packed so however many five thousand people in there you know um, sitting in the in the middle of the hall as well um, so that was that was a great experience and then uh, another one was a was a fantastic again looking back I didn't really appreciate it at the time. Another fantastic um, experience I had an opportunity uh, was to play uh, as a soloist with Black Dyke Band uh, in the International Trumpet Guild uh, Festival. I think that was 2002, I'm going to say. Um, I mean, I would have been the first, as far as I'm aware, Salvation Army soloist to have appeared in that, um, that kind of festival. It's grown and grown. It's quite a big international biannual, I think, um, festival. And that was in um, the Royal Northern College that, that year as well. So that was a great experience to stand up and play Clear Skies with um, a company by Black, Black Dyke Band. Some amazing memories there, and thank you for sharing those with us. Really fascinating to hear. My next question sort of leads on from that. Uh, have you got a favourite solo to perform? Um, I get, do you know what? The answer to that is probably no, having thought about it. Um, and... You know, I've probably done most of the solos, especially the old ones and the, you know, the Golden Slippers and Songs of X and then Victorious and all, all the big solos. Um, one of the ones I did enjoy playing, I guess, was more, uh, which still gets played, but isn't seen as a tremendously difficult technical solo, is Ray Bowe's Rhapsody for Corner and Band. I do enjoy playing that, the lyrical of the whole solo from the opening and the 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 gorgeous uh, initial kind of theme as well um so i guess if i had to pick one that i enjoyed just playing and performing and practicing even it would it, it would be that i did enjoy kind of the thrill <laughs> um the dangerous thrill of getting through solos like life abundant which is literally seat of your pants <laughs> a seat of your pants solo even if you play it well you know to, to get through that, I think, needs as much luck as skill, if I'm honest. Um, so uh, so a different kind of uh, sense of achievement, I guess. But just enjoying um, practising and playing, I, I guess, it, if I had to pick one, um, I think it would be uh, Rhapsody for Cornet and Band. Nice, a great choice. And of course, nobody can just pick up the cornet and rattle through Life Abundant, for example. Uh, and if they did and, and could, I'd quite like to meet them. It'd be quite extraordinary, wouldn't it? Um, so let's talk about where it all began for you. We've heard about those absolute high points and the pinnacles uh, that you've reached so far, perhaps more to come. Uh, but where did it all begin for you playing? Who or what inspired you to pick up a cornet? And was it a cornet? Yeah, it was a cornet. Um, well, all 
from my home and my home court, Cardiff Kenton. So my father um, taught me to play at a very early age. Apparently I was getting the corner out of the box because my elder brother played and my dad played in the band. Um, and he basically gave me the cornet um, when I was, apparently, because I can't remember this, from four years old. And then uh, uh, that was back in the day when there was still sunshine hours going on every Sunday afternoon as well. So we were at the hall for the morning meeting, quick lunch, then back down at whatever it was, two or three o'clock for an hour long sunshine hour meeting. But they were great for me as a young Salvation Army musician because you got the chance probably every month or so to stand up in front of people and play a solo. Literally from the age of five, when I stood up and played my first corner solo, I wouldn't like to go back and hear it, but but it was but that but those days and those sunshine hours and that opportunity to just stand up at a really early age stood me in in such good stead moving forward, just controlling nerves, just being used to standing in front of people and getting up on the on the stage to play. But that was all down to my father. He was a great influence on me, Fred Saunders. Um, he was my first hero. He was uh, the best bandsman in the world. He he was uh, an underrated musician. He um, he basically taught himself music. He put himself in night school through the what was still the uh, the Welsh College of Music and Drama to do his LTCL and the, and the, those kind of things himself. And and um, he was a songster leader um, in in the corps for many years as well. So. He, that's my influence. Uh, my dad taught me to play, and then obviously, as soon as when he realised perhaps there was a little bit of potential there, um, he took me for for lessons with with other musicians um, and really helped and support. Along with my mother as well, I have to say, it was a the kick up the backside kind of influence. Uh, but m but my father was the person that really uh, put the corner in my hand and um, encouraged um, and didn't push in any way for me to to enjoy playing. Excellent. Thank you for sharing those precious memories. And perhaps having heard what you've spoken about so far, some might be surprised to know that your current career isn't in music. It's in something completely different, really. Um, what do you get up to for work? It's funny, yeah. I, I've never, from even being in school, I've never really wanted to have any kind of career in music. I love music. I love playing um, as much as possible. I mean, I didn't even do music A-level kind of thing. It wasn't, it, I just didn't want to do that. I was, I was just happy playing in the bands and, and, and doing that. So I, um, the career I kind of fell into was basically into sales, because I guess I can talk. Um, and I work for a company, a global company now, uh, that supplies scientific and laboratory equipment and products to all kind of laboratories in the world. So from research, so the likes of AstraZeneca, and they're doing their kind of COVID work in the last couple of years to universities, research labs, uh, biotech companies, biopharma. So um, I'm a kind of a sales manager and we, we sell all that they need in laboratories. So I get to see a lot of people. I get to communicate with people a lot, which is what I enjoy. Just going and speaking to people and, and sharing. It comes quite naturally to me to just kind of talk, I guess. So um, and that's what I do, and I enjoy I enjoy my um, my career, and it's um, I'll enjoy the travelling, um, speaking to people, the challenge of sales, and the targets. And I've learnt a lot in my life from from my career as well, kind of setting out targets, 
and achieving targets and goals. Um, I've found that to put that to good use, hopefully, in my, in my life as well. So, yeah, that's what I do. Perhaps there's some synergy there between being able to sell products and stand up and sell a solo or a message, maybe. A, a thesis <laughs> could be written. Yeah, there's perhaps there's a confidence kind of thing, I guess, but yeah. Um, and just actually, I think we've, we've spoken mostly about Salvation Army bands. Of course, this is a Salvation Army podcast, so not too surprising. But of course, that just is the tip of the iceberg with your playing and your playing career. Uh, until quite recently, you played Solar Cornet with the world-famous Corey Band. Uh, first of all, there must be many, many highlights from your time with the band, and it'd be very crass and uh, perhaps even undignified to ask you to pick a favourite. So I am going to. Uh, have you got a favourite? <laughs> uh, I had a great two or three years, um, up to about, you see, recently, it was probably 2016, I guess, so I did a couple of things afterwards. That was kind of 2013. The Nationals, Philip Harper, basically rang me one day. I'd worked with Philip before, years before, and then said they needed a... A Repiano Cornet part covered for for the Nationals in the Royal Albert Hall, and that year the test piece was um, of Distant Memories, um, an amazing and one of my favourite test pieces probably of all time. So uh, I did give it a little thought because I wasn't really playing then, to be honest with you, um, um, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity. So I did that in October 2013, and the band was just amazing, just a different level of band in the. I'd ever been before. I'd played with Corey in the past, actually, but not when they were at the peak of their powers, as they are, as they are now. I played with them in the nineties, um, and then I did that, and then that was a kind of a one-off. But then a couple of months later, Philip got in contact again to to do um, some more playing in another contest, and then from twenty fourteen, probably then I played with them solidly for two two and a half years, and it was a great time. So um, the band was bang on form. If you look back at the records, kind of 2013 to 2016, band basically won every contest, you know. So I think uh, three national finals in the Royal Albert Hall, uh, European, British Open, brass in concert at the time. So that I was playing with them when, when, you know, the band, I was a passenger with the band, but I was in the band when they, when, when we won all those contests. So again, just, Fell on my feet somehow. It was just a, just an amazing time to be part of of the Corey band. Um, fabulous experience musically. I mean, I learnt, still learnt a lot playing wise, and then moving forward, kind of as a as a musical director, bandmaster, learnt a lot as well from from Philip Harp and talking about words like innovation. Um, just great to see to see the in, uh, the innovations that's going on there and moving brass banding forward. Highlight, I guess, contest-wise, would have been winning the Europeans in 2016 because that whoever's done that contest, they will know that's tough work. That's two solid days, two big, massive test pieces uh, over two days, and the quality of the bands from around Europe and the UK is just astounding. You know, if if you appreciate top quality brass band in music making, then go to the go to the Europeans. You 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 will have your head blown away with the quality. Uh, of the bands from from all over Europe, so to win that contest and they've gone on and won it again probably once or twice since then as well. Um, that that was um, just an amazing feeling, just to be part part of that experience. But yes, I was just very fortunate to um, to uh, to be part of that band for as I said two or three years. And do you think that winning streak the band were on was because you were in the band, or can listeners make their own conclusions there? 
No, they won despite me being part of the band, <laughs> is, is what I'd like to say, yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's really great to hear some of your story. I know there's so much more we could talk about, but uh, I'm sure that nobody wants a five-hour podcast this time. So we'll move on to some quirky quick-fire questions then, just to wrap up the more serious side and go on something a little bit more quirky. So first of all, have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? I'm going to say Will Featon or Dean Goffin, probably. Yeah, those those two. OK, and now to be even more specific, have you got a favourite Salvation Army band piece? Um, no. Many, as everybody else would tell you. Just because I'm thinking about Will Featon, the one of his that doesn't get played enough because it's very tricky uh, is um, My Master's Will. Uh, amazing piece of music lovely woven passages and um, a sit on the edge of your seat knee jangling cornet solo excellent next question beef or lamb I'm Welsh lamb excellent stuff thought it might be now if KFC founder Carl Saunders sorry Colonel Saunders uh, didn't have the rank of Colonel what rank should he have (laughs) general uh, what was your least favourite subject at school? Maths. Um, who in the Bible do you feel like you can learn from the most? Um, Daniel in the lion's den to be more brave and take risks and go with God's will. Excellent stuff. Uh, first chocolate that you pick out of a box of heroes? Um, 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 galaxy. Okay, good choice. If you're cooking, what's your signature dish? Post eggs on toast. Uh, best place you've ever set foot? <laughs> um, um, Cardiff. Cardiff, lovely. Uh, the the uh, centre of all world civilization. Exactly. Uh, if all of humanity's art and literature was wiped out, but you could save one book and one painting or antiquity, what would you save and why? You know that I'm not that well educated, Matthew, to think about books and antiquities and... Um, well, obviously, book would have to be the Bible, um, and paintings, uh, the Mona Lisa, because it's obviously the most famous painting in the world, I would suggest. Fair enough. Good answers. Uh, and final question from the quirky quickfire. What is the optimum angle to rotate one's cornet clockwise whilst playing? <laughs> uh, probably a good 180 degrees, I would say, Matthew. Yeah. Okay, so before we move on to our analysis for this episode, it's time for Fully Scored Band Manager 2023. The concept is fairly simple, and those that have heard our first two episodes of Season 4 will know. Um, The idea is to form a fantasy band chosen by our guests. Uh, The aim isn't necessarily to create the greatest band that's ever existed, but more to share the influence and admiration for those who have played or we've looked up to uh, over the years of our playing. So, Carl, I'm going to ask you, for the Fully Scored Band Manager, who would your two picks be for the band, and why? OK, good question. So I'm going to pick one, which I think is a, is a, is a good answer for cornet players, um, and then a little bit of a self-indulgent uh, second one as well, if I'm allowed to do that as well. So uh, I would like to nominate um, Derek Diffie. Derek Diffie, I think, so for Salvation Army cornet players and cornet soloists, I think Derek is a vital linchpin to get modern Salvation Army cornet players where we are now today, because before Derek, 
You had amazing, legendary cornet soloists such as Roland Cobb. But Derek came along in kind of into the 70s and started doing things like lip trills, you know, in, in, so, in solos like Golden Slippers, uh, and really moving uh, cornet playing, especially in the Salvation Army, into a more modern kind of format where it's acceptable to do something a bit jazzy and, you know, uh, dangerous and playing solos like Golden Slippers especially. The, the, the players that are around today will all be influenced, whether we know it or not, by, by Derek's playing in the 70s and moving things forward. Like Life Abundant, finishing on a Super G. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That couldn't, that couldn't be done before Derek Diffie, though. So my nomination for Principal Cornet would be Derek. Fantastic. A great choice. And who would your second nomination be? Look forward to hearing. Going back to what I said earlier on, I would like to nominate uh, an EFAT bass player, and that would be my father, Fred Saunders. He was a very good player, underrated, only played with other core bands and other kind of bands in the area. But because of the influence that he had on me and many other people, and that he loved playing uh, in brass bands, he would sit second uh, E-flat bass. He would not put himself as principal E-flat bass. He would let whoever was there play principal E-flat bass. But I would like to nominate uh, my much-missed and loved father, Fred Saunders, as E-flat bass player. Fantastic. A really, really lovely choice. Both choices are absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Carl. And thank you for talking to us. It's been a pleasure to get to know you even more. And I hope that our listeners will enjoy hearing you. But don't worry, you're going to be back soon on Band Mastermind. Oh dear. Thank you, Carl. We look forward to hearing you in Band Mastermind at the end of this episode. Now, there are times when a piece of music comes along that it's so significant to a movement that they seem to define an era or certainly create an archetype for it. And today's analysis looks at one of those pieces. It's my pleasure to welcome staff bandsman Jonathan Evans to Fully Score to speak about Dean Goffin's The Light of the World. Well, Jonathan Evans, trombone, thank you ever so much for joining us today on Fully Scored. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. And you're going to be speaking about The Light of the World, Dean Goffin's classic work, is that correct? Yes, I'm very excited to be talking about it and um, feel quite honoured considering it's such an iconic and well-loved piece as well. Yeah, absolutely. No pressure. Two times voted top of the Sammy Music <laughs> Index uh, Hall of Fame. But again, no pressure at all. So uh, shall we delve in? Let's. So before we look at the score, I've got a few contextual questions. Perhaps you could illuminate us with. Could you tell us a little bit about when this piece was written and perhaps some of the story behind it? Yeah, well, with this piece, you really need to go back to the painting of the same name by Holman Hunt, uh, which was first produced in 1854. There are three versions of it. The original hangs uh, at Oxford University in Keble College. There was a second version that is uh, a smaller version, which is in Manchester Art Gallery, just around the corner from me, and something I like to go and see from time to time. And then the third and final version is perhaps the most famous, the life-size version in St Paul's Cathedral. Um, probably one of the most viewed paintings uh, in history uh, because it went on a world tour in 1906 seen by two million people it was evacuated in the second world war such was its importance um, and that's probably the one that people think of but that was actually the, the third version now the painting features the figure of jesus wearing a crown of thorns and appearing with marks of nails in his hands 
Um, he's standing patiently outside the door, knocking with one hand, holding a lantern with the other. This is symbolic, uh, and the door represents the door of our lives, the door to our heart. Jesus knocks on the door. He waits patiently for us to open it up. Crucial to the painting is that the door has no handle. The only way for it to be opened is from the inside. A person who hears Jesus' message, they need to accept it and open their life to admit him. Now, in all of the paintings, there's an inscription from Revelation 3.20 written beneath the picture, which reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. And that is the inspiration behind Hunt's painting. There are lots of details which we'll delve into, some of which come out in the music. Now, Dean Goffin viewed this as a 14-year-old at St Paul's Cathedral um, in the spring of 1931. He had a, a six-month period travelling through Europe with his father. And it's interesting to note that St Paul's Cathedral was an important place for Dean Goffin uh, because in the centenary celebrations in 1965, he closed those celebrations with a, by conducting a performance of the Messiah. So that cathedral was a very important place for, for him as well. That trip as a 14-year-old was very significant. Um, Dean Goffin at that point had largely been uninterested in music, despite being the youngest son of a, of a well-known Salvation Army musician, Brigadier Henry Goffin. Now, he was a well-known composer, particularly of marches. Listeners will probably be familiar with the Red Shield, which is his most famous march. Well, his son Dean met Eric Ball during that trip, which was very significant for him. He attended lots of large Salvation Army music events, and perhaps apart from seeing the, the painting The Light of the World, most pivotally, he went to a, a BBC Proms concert and he saw a performance of the Planets Suite, which was significant because it was the first time that Gustav Holst himself had conducted uh, that piece. Uh, Dean referred to it as a cultural and spiritual landmark in his life, and Holst became a hero for him. So following the trip, uh, music became important in his life, and he went back to New Zealand. By 19, he was bandmaster at Wellington South. He then, during the Second World War, was a military bandmaster. He was writing music for his band, um, including an early version of Anthem of the Free, the march that we know as a Salvation Army march. There was a, a military band version first. Following the war, he completed a music degree. And uh, during his studies, he decided to enter uh, an international Salvation Army devotional composition competition. And he worked on two pieces that we would now know as the light of the world and also the gospel story. And he was doing that in 1946. But really interestingly, neither of those pieces were actually accepted uh, due to some kind of technicality. We don't actually know what that technicality was, though we might want to guess at some of the reasons. Um, and it didn't proceed far enough to get to the attention of Bramwell Coles. Well, a couple of years later, Eric Ball, who he'd met on that trip as a teenager, he selected Goffin's Rhapsody uh, in Brass for the British Open test piece up in Manchester in 1949. It, it uh, was a very popular piece on the day, still is, uh, a brass band classic. And Bramwell Coles wrote to the chief secretary in New Zealand and said, this is a fantastic piece of music. Why have we not had anything from Dean Goffin before? And the chief secretary wrote back to say, well, you have. You rejected it. You had two pieces from him and you didn't want either of them. Um, and so Light of the World was subsequently found again. And the International Music Board allowed for it to be published, this piece that could have been lost because it was rejected from that competition. Uh, and there was a note with it that said, the composer shows promise. 
and The Light of the World became Dean Goffin's first published work in 1951. He followed it up with Shadow of the Cross very soon after that. Symphony of Thanksgiving followed and then um, a, a career of, of great distinction um, with writing for the Salvation Army. But so nearly this piece, which has become such a favourite for so many and has had such an impact on people's lives, was nearly lost because of a technicality. Fantastic. That's really, really fascinating. Some of that background, certainly I didn't know uh, a lot of that, and especially hearing how the planets had actually influenced uh, Dean Goffin's works. And I guess you can probably hear that in some of his music, that very English tradition, even though he's living on the other side of the world well before the era of Spotify and Apple Music. Before we delve into the score, just another question about this music. Why do you think it is such a significant piece of music um, within the Salvation Army genre, even though it's written... 60, 70 years ago, why do you think it's so important still today? Well, I think this is the outline for the modern meditation. Um, and it has remained, as you say, hugely popular. There's a sentimentality through that, that it's been passed through generations of post-war SA bands people. And I think thousands have been brought to Christ by it. And that would include me. I played this piece um, at a Salvation Army summer school in the West Midlands in 2007 when I was 15 led by um, Gavin Lamplow was the bandmaster of the band that week. And we spent as much time talking about it and the real meaning behind the piece and opening the door of our heart as we did playing it. And um, that had a real impact on me as a 15-year-old. Um, that was really the week that I, I gave my life to Christ and subsequently became uh, a senior soldier in, in kind of the six, six to eight months afterwards. But it was directly as a result of this piece. I think the link to the artwork gives it a greater accessibility than many similar works and there's a lot of extra musical devices used the knocking motif that we'll talk about um is i think a, a link to more of the cinematic modern compositions think of writers like martin corner stephen ponsford dorothy gates they're using those same ideas um and we mentioned holst goffin undoubtedly is inspired by holst in his writing yes that english style but also that ability that holst had through something like the planets to connect with the man on the street, not just the musical aficionado. Um, Goffin could be engaged and transported someone at, somewhere else by that piece, and he has done the same with The Light of the World. Goffin spoke of Salvation Army band music, that it was being on a permanent mission to the man in the street. Our band music message must be plain and simple, and I think he achieves that with this piece, but also on an, another level speaks to the heart as well. Uh, it's the perfect combination of the art with the painting, the brushstrokes, the text that we'll talk about, and the music itself. It's playable, it's not particularly difficult. It's great that it's also been published in the classic series, so you can play it with a band of five players, which is brilliant. It's that model for composers today, and it's timeless. I think Leidson said in a letter to, to Goffin, if you should never write anything more, you will have left your mark indelibly. Um, and it, even though it was his first published work and he wrote some great music, we talked about the test piece, Symphony for Thanksgiving, he, he didn't write anything else as significant as this um, in terms of impacting people's lives. What a first piece to be published, hey? Yeah, follow that. Absolutely. So, shall we delve into the score and talk about the different sections and how the music relates to the Holman Hunt painting that you've mentioned about? I think it would make sense to uh, start at the beginning, don't you? I think so. So we, we delve straight into a knocking motif, Jesus knocking at the door, and that's presented uh, in the horns. 
And so it's Solomon's serious stuff from the very beginning. Uh, and we hear that motif answered by a, an upwardly moving euphonium line. Now, that takes us into bars three and four. And these two bars come back again and again. I, I couldn't find it in, in any of Dean Scoffin's notes about this piece, um, in particular where he was taking that from or what was the significance of it returning. A lot of the additional material is developed from the second tune that we'll come to, which is also significant in Salvation Army history, that there is a second tune in a meditation. Um, and I think that this motive is, is derived from the second tune. And to me, it's, it's focusing on the idea of sin. And any time that the music seems to be going anywhere, this motif seems to get in the way. And I think it, it, it's a motif for sin and the, the struggles that and our own lives can get in the way of us opening that door and opening our, our heart to Jesus. So you'll hear that in bar three and four, but then on many occasions through the piece. The first four bars then repeat upper tone, and then the final um, treatment is in the subdominant um, before four bars in the tonic, pausing on a dominant chord that sets us up for letter A and the first tune that we're going to hear, which is Aurelia. The tune Aurelia is set to the words, O Jesus, thou art standing outside the fast closed door. Of course, a very obvious reference to the painting there. Are you able to share the words for the whole, uh, the whole hymn to us, please? O Jesus, thou art standing outside the fast closed door, in lowly patience waiting to pass the threshold o'er. Shame on us, Christian brothers, his name and sign who bear. O shame, thrice shame upon us to keep him standing there. Those words are by William Howe, and it's a hymn from 1867. Uh, that was actually inspired by a poem entitled Brothers and a Sermon by a Victorian writer called Jean Inglegow. Now I did look up that poem, and I'd recommend that you don't, because it's very long and not particularly interesting, but you can <laughs> see the, the link between uh, the poetry and the hymn. Uh, one historian um, actually thinks that Howe would have also seen Hunt's painting would have seen the original that's now at Oxford, which could have been further inspiration for um, for these words. And as you say, they're so closely linked to the idea of Hunt's painting. So it's likely he did see it. Now, those words are perhaps quite old fashioned language, but uh, what do they mean to you or what do you take from them? Well, what's most interesting to me is the use of the word Christian. 
So there is a suggestion that the person beyond the door has been or proclaims to be a Christian and yet their heart is closed off to God and they're not opening that door to Jesus in their lives. It's a reminder to, to me as a Christian that we are sinners too and that we, I, regularly fail to practice where, what we preach and we need to enter into that relationship with the light of the world afresh each day, especially if we want to show God's light in what can be a very dark world. Thank you for that. So the music then takes us through into section B. Um, what do, can we notice through this next section? What is there to look out for? Well, it's very expressive. It's marked as such. And it begins with uh, a cornet and trombone duet. Bramwell Coles in his score notes describes them um, being in recitative style and it's like they are speaking aloud their reflections on hearing the knocking and the punctuation of the knocking motif never goes away. You keep hearing it and there are swells from piano to forte and it adds to this feel of struggle that is going on beyond the door for the Christian. Should I open the door to Jesus? Should I give away some control? Dean Goffin and, and also later his biographer Cyril Bradwell um, spoke of this section being a mirror of his spiritual pilgrimage at that time. Um, he was struggling with doubt. He had a sense of guilt about some of the lifestyle choices he'd made whilst in the military and, and, and serving in the Second World War. And he had these competing pathways in his life of musical study. I'm fairly sure that he was one of the first um, Salvationist composers to obtain a music degree. Um, so he had that pathway going on. But also he was struggling with whether to become a Salvation Army officer. And I think this section and B and C are a musical presentation of, of that conflict that he believed was inside all of us uh, and reflects his own odyssey at that time, which is quite validating really, because I think as Christians, we need to know that we will go through dark times and at times we will struggle with our faith. So that's almost reassuring. But the music itself is one of toil and, and doubt and struggle. The material is derived from a secondary tune that still we've not heard, we've not got to that secondary tune, but that's where it's coming from. When we get to letter C, it's marked passionately and there is a noticeable upping in the intensity as first a cornet solo and then some interplay between horn, baritone and euphonium continue what is a more robust reflection at this point. It's somewhat reminiscent of the uh, euphonium upward scale from the opening. Um, I also think going back to the painting that B and C appear to represent some of the finer details you'll see on the painting and I really would recommend when you're listening to it having, a, having it in front of you um, there's a, it's in a dark wood, it's at the end of the day, and it is perhaps representing the fact that time is running out for that door to be opened. There are weeds growing on the door itself, representing sin, making it harder for us to open the door um, because of all those things that get in the way. So I think all of that and all of our inner turmoil uh, as struggling Christians at times is represented in letters B and C. So out of that turmoil and that strife, the music transitions and changes uh, as we move towards letter D. 
What do you think is happening here in the narrative of the music and the painting? Well, 6 before D is marked with tenderness. That's really, a um, thinking as a, as a conductor here, that's a really tough move to go from playing with passion on a crescendo and then suddenly this moment of tenderness. And we're modulating from the minor anguish we've been in in the previous section and we arrive at a concert A-flat major chord. So you question why the sudden shift? Well, it's actually preparing us for a second tune um, and it's preparing us for the voice of Jesus himself. As Dean Goffin introduces a second song, Fanny Crosby's Behold Me Standing at the Door. And it's a song in which Jesus himself acts as the narrator. Behold me standing at the door, and hear me pleading evermore. Say, weary heart, oppressed with sin, may I come in, may I come in. So we hear that at letter D. The previous recitative section we can now hear was actually derived from this chorus, which is first of all um, pianissimo in the low horns and the first trombone. So there's tenderness in, in Jesus' word, but there's passion too. He is pleading with the Christian beyond the door. And that question, may I come in, may I come in, is asked again and again. The cornets join as we swell into the next section. But before we talk about that next section, it's important to, to pause and talk about what an important moment this was for Salvation Army music and for the meditation. Introducing a secondary tune to support programmatic ideas inherent in the primary tune. This is entirely new at this point. It's not been done. Eric Ball did it a couple of years later in the piece Sanctuary, and subsequently, because this has become the model for this type of music, many of us have done it. Think of a piece like Still by Andrew Blythe that I know you featured on, on the podcast before. We see again the idea of introducing a second tune to underline the message of the first. Now, we don't know why Light of the World was disqualified from that competition, why it was nearly lost. But I wonder if this had something to do with it. Maybe there was a stipulation that it was a meditation on one tune and Dean Goffin here was breaking the norm. Maybe it, it didn't meet their criteria because this was a real shift, but something that still impacts the writers of today. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And really, again, fascinating to hear some of that background that we wouldn't necessarily know just listening to the piece or hearing it on the Sunday morning. So that takes us into the Dolce just before letter E uh, that then becomes a little bit more agitated once again. Could you tell us uh, what the message is in this section of the music, please, Jonathan? Well, this to me feels like decision time for the Christian. And it reminds me of one of the more interesting features of Hunt's painting. Jesus's feet are turned sideways away from the door. And most art historians seem to think the meaning of this is that Jesus has been there for a very long time, as suggested by the, the dark wood, and he's now preparing to go. The implication being it's almost too late to open the door and admit Jesus into our lives. So here at E, um, the knocking motif returns, but the tension is rising. And this is aided by an increase in tempo with a poco agitato, but also in pitch as the cornets, horns and baritones continually answer on rising degrees of the scale. 
Um, and that's recalling the, the motive of inward struggle featured by the cornet and trombone back at letter B. What I love about this section, though, is that Jesus' knock is constant, refusing to sway away from the purity and stability of a unison concert C. It never moves off that concert C. And there's a reassurance here to the fact that the knocking is unchanging. While the feet may be pointing away from the door, he is still there, still asking, still pleading, despite the Christian, and I include my own, indecisiveness and our sin clouding our judgment. He hasn't gone yet. He stands there as the light of the world, the king of kings, as he's shown in the painting, wanting to know you and me. And then we reach the climax of the work, a fortissimo, following which we come to what Bramwell calls, calls a hush in his score notes, a much softer knocking motif. And it feels to me at the end of letter E that the Christian has finally made their mind up as signified by this symbol that takes us into the next section. So the next section is marked above the score, O Jesus, Thou Art Pleading. What can you tell us about this second iteration of the melody here, Aurelia? So we've got these words, O Jesus, Thou Art Pleading, in accents meek and low. I died for you, my children, and will ye treat me so? O Lord, with shame and sorrow, we open now the door. Dear Saviour, enter, enter, and leave us nevermore. And we can see it's a verse in which the subject has decided to open the door to their heart and to welcome Jesus, the light of the world, into their life. Interesting to note the repetition of the word enter used by the, uh, by the author. And it almost feels like the pleading has gone from being Jesus to the Christian who is pleading for, for Christ to, to, come into, to come into their life. A beautiful little feature at F is this descant in the cornets. Um, it has its own dynamic directions as well, which just aids the colour. And I think the glory of this presentation is they bring a tenderness. It's like a voice from above, um, just speaking as, as we hear the main tune played below. you could explain what that means and why it is a morendo moment. Well, at the start of G, we have the motif from bar three and four at the start of the piece, which I mentioned, which I think personally is a sin motif. Um, but this time, that sin motif is fading away. Rather than growing into it, we're actually starting with it and coming away from it on a decrescendo as part of that morendo that takes us towards the end. And it, to me, it's as if the sin is dying away as the darkness in the Christian's life is overtaken by light. And actually, Dean Goffin makes it feel lighter as well. He removes the bases for two and a half bars, so it's got a lighter feel. And he hasn't done that anywhere else. 
Um, so it just feels lighter as we ease away from, from that motif. And we end as we started with the knocking motif. But this time, rather than it being followed by discord, there's resolution as that upward scale from the euphonium, part of the Christian struggle earlier in the piece, now resolves. I can't remember if it was on this podcast or somewhere else, but I heard Kenneth Downey talk about his uh, piece, Imperfect Peace. And when he was talking about it, he, he said that to understand and appreciate peace, you need to know hardship. You need to know difficult times. So here we have the very music that took us into sin, tumult, struggle, doubt, and it's used to bring us satisfaction, comfort, peace, and ultimately a relationship with Jesus. Um, and uh, there's that resolving of tension, resolving of struggle. We know that happened for Dean Goffin in his own life, but here it happens for the Christian beyond the door as he welcomes Jesus in. And hopefully that can happen uh, for us as the listener too. So I think it's quite clear to see that um, what you've spoken about, this piece representing and means to you, and I would say to me as well, and I'm sure many of those listening, uh, is not just a message that was prevalent when the piece was written, but actually is something that we can still grasp hold of today. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, I, I feel it's timeless and it's lost none of its relevance. And I think, probably on, on four levels actually, Firstly, for Christians, and, and Dean Goffin clearly, in his choice of songs, um, saw this as a piece about a Christian who needed to re-accept Christ into their life. Um, I think for Christians, we need to make sure that we're not passive. We need to open the doors um, to Jesus and to ask him into our lives afresh each day, to shine his light into every area of our, of our lives. We can't say, we don't want you in that part of my life, thank you very much, that's not for you. Um, we've talked about the fact that Jesus' feet were turned sideways away from the door um, and that he's been there for a very long time and is being ignored. We need Christians who afresh each day are full of light, life, love, rather than the decaying rotten fruit we see uh, on the forest floor in the painting that want to keep saying yes um, and, uh, and entering into relationship with Jesus afresh. Clearly, there is a message for non-believers too. And if you don't know Christ, then you can consider opening your heart to this invitation. And as I played the piece as a 15-year-old, I wouldn't have classed myself as a non-believer, but I probably wouldn't have classed myself as a fully-fledged, committed Christian either. And so for me, as a 15-year-old, I wanted to open that door and have Jesus in my life. Holman Hunt himself, we know, was an atheist, but came to faith at around the same time he was painting the light of the world for the first time and so he had an opening of the door experience in his own life uh, and we know if we look at scripture and it's so important to put scripture in context if we go a verse further than the inscription into verse 21 we have in verse 20 this knocking i stand at the door i'll come right in and, and supper with you 
but the message translation in verse 21 says conquerors will sit alongside me at the head of the table just as I having conquered took my place of honor at the side of my father that's my gift to the conquerors so if you're accepting Jesus into your life you are becoming a conqueror you are at the head of the table with him I also think there's a message for us corporately and I mean as the church I mean as the Salvation Army I mean as music groups and bands within the Salvation Army if we look at the wider context of these verses in Revelation, Revelation 3 and 14 to 22, that is a, a vision um, uh, given by John and addressed to the church at Laodicea. And my apologies if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Uh, we learn from this assessment that that church was lukewarm, smug, self-satisfied. It boasted about its wealth. It had need of nothing, but it was deceiving itself. In terms of its spiritual condition, it was wretched, poor, blind, naked. Jesus urged the church to turn to him as he was positioned outside the church, inviting whoever heard his voice to open the door and welcome him in. And I think we, as the church, as the Salvation Army, as music groups within the Salvation Army, we have to be constantly reflecting on our own churches, on our own bands, on our own groups. Are we welcoming? Are we inviting? Are we open? And more fundamentally than that, is Jesus part of who we are? And that's a question we need to be asking. Lastly, the music. This was a new era for Salvation Army music, as we said earlier, and it has lost none of its significance because it is still the model today for our composers for creating effective meditations. Um, so the message is the most important thing, but this is a really musically significant piece. It's not just a sentimental piece. Um, this is really, really important in our history and how we developed uh, the music in our journals well jonathan thank you so much for sharing those words and those thoughts and delving into that music to pick out that really poignant message for ourselves uh, and for what we do as salvation army musicians there thank you for having me matthew thank you for all you're doing it's a fantastic podcast really enjoy listening to it and a real uh, honor and pleasure to be on with you this month thank you jonathan for your time preparing that i certainly feel enlightened now it's time to feel the sand between your toes and hear the gentle lapping of waves as we set sail to Arid Island. Land ahoy! Welcome to Arid Island. Today, I'm joined by staff bandsman Stephen Williams, a former North Walian, staff bandsman Andrew Headley, and former staff bandsman Thomas Nielsen. Well, hello and welcome to Arid Island Album for a very special session here. Uh, we're at the Territorial Youth Band down here at the Hotel of Dreams, the Carrington House Hotel, not a sponsor. And I'm joined by three guests for today's session. It's the uh, final night and... Uh, about half one in the morning, I'm joined by three very special guests. We've got Tom Nielsen. We've got Stephen Hello. Williams. Hello. And we've got Andrew Headley. Hello. So, gents, uh, we're going to get to know you a little bit more over the next couple of minutes. And uh, and then, of course, the all-important question of if you were stuck on an arid and deserted island, what album would you take with you and why? So, let's start with Andrew, shall we? Yes. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about yourself what do you do as your day job? Yep, so I work in an accountancy firm. So we've, uh, we've recently just finished our tax return deadline, which was uh, 
quite interesting, long hours and working really hard. But yeah. You say know. quite interesting. Was it really? Yeah, it was terribly boring. Yeah, it was awful. Okay. So let's talk about something a bit more interesting. How long have you been in the international staff band for now? Four years now. Four years? Yeah. Excellent. Have you got any highlights from your time so far? Um, I was lucky. We joined, I joined the band in 2019, just before the COVID year. So um, we had trips to Norway and then Chicago. So probably those. Fantastic stuff. Stevie, do you mind if I call you Stevie? Not at all. Good Please to have do. all week. <laughs> Tell us about yourself. What do you do as a career? Um, I'm a bass trombonist, um, freelancing, and music teacher as well. Fantastic. Do you enjoy it? Love it. Excellent stuff. And you're also part of the International Staff Band. A little bit longer you've been part of the band. How long have you been now? Yeah, in my tenth year actually now. Ten years. Is crazy. You don't look a day over twelve. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tom Nielsen, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, Mark, I was... I was in the ISB until fairly recently. Hmm. Um, I just finished my studies uh, last summer at the Guildhall School where I studied the trumpet. So at the moment I'm just playing the trumpet, really. Excellent. And just uh, back off a train from doing an NSO gig, how did it go? thought it went well, yeah. I thought it went OK. Um, nice to be back of the week, though. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, we're here at the Territorial Youth Band this week. Have you got any highlights from the week? To be honest, what I've really enjoyed, um, and sometimes it's difficult to enjoy when you sat there for such a long time, but actually auditioning some of the students this year mm. and seeing the progress they've made, even from last year, uh, the amount of time and effort they put in to you know every single one of them, to hear how they've all really committed to it over the last year, I got a real kick out of it to listen to them this time. Fantastic, and a tricky job to put everyone... In the seats, but some well, great, great auditions. Well, oh, tried my best. I've got to have some sort of use. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been really, really strong cornet section. And I think the whole band has been really strong this year. Agreed. Which is great. Andrew, would you agree? Yes, yes. The cornets were very good. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so could hear it from your audition, said. Yes, yeah. So a sim- similar sort of thing. I've enjoyed seeing the progress. We've had uh, new principals in the band and just seeing how they're, how they're dealing with it all. Excellent. Good. So, it's quite a few pieces on the programme. Any favourite pieces you're looking forward to performing at the Lighthouse tomorrow? Or today, as it's half one? <laughs> I've never played the new movements of the revised Laudato Dominum variations. I really enjoy those, so it's nice mm. to get to play them. Yeah. Andrew, have you got yeah. anything you're really excited about? Uh, I quite like Lord of All Hopefulness. It's quite nice to play a small band piece in a big mm. band. Nice change. Stunning, stunning yeah. arrangement by Ken Downey. Tom? To echo Andrew, actually, this year my favourite piece has been the Lord of All Hopefulness. I think it's a beautiful one. You can, you can just hear how it's going to sort of resonate in the lighthouse tomorrow. Mm. You know, the, mm-hmm. the sort of warm brass band sound in there. I'm really excited for it. Absolutely. Well, we could probably waffle on for a few more hours, but I better get your album choices. So, if you were stuck on an arid island and could only take one album with you, what would it be and why? Who wants to go first? Nice. Yeah, go for it, Tom. <laughs> it's not necessarily an album as such, mm. but there are, um, I think the beauty of, you know, the era of technology is that, um, you know, several performances every now and then are put online for us to have a listen back to. And one piece that's my, my favourite piece of music at the moment is uh, William Walton's First Symphony. It's an amazing piece, orchestrally, rhythmically, so much detail to it. But also, there's a fantastic trumpet part. 
And there's there's several recordings that I really love of it, but there's one in particular, a live recording taken uh, with uh, Antonio Papano conducting the NSO at the Barbican a few years ago, and it's such an exciting recording. You can really you really feel like you're there amongst it when you're listening to it. So that would be the one that I would take with me. Nice. And I know you had a difficult time picking a a band album, so try to avoid it altogether. But are there any particular pieces from any sort of recordings that would be real standout uh, recordings in the brass band genre for you? Well, I was saying to the guys earlier that um, one recording that I really, you know, love listening to is the recording that ISB did uh, three or four years ago, maybe slightly longer, mm. of Isaiah Forty yeah. as part of the Heritage uh, Collection. Um, I think I remember reading the reviews that it was, you know, even on the uh, a live contest day, it would have found favour in the box. And you can really hear that. It's, you know, it makes me proud to be a Salvationist to hear playing at that standard, mm-hmm. um, you know, from one of our own bands, the ISB. Mm-hmm. And your dad's playing fantastic solo in it. Yeah, of course, that's very, you know, I'm very yeah. proud listening back to that as well. Absolutely. Would it just be you, Stevie, in the band when that was recorded? I believe so. Out of, yeah, I was yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. Nice one. Who's drawn the next shortest straw and wants to go next? I'll go. Nice, Andrew. So, what would your Arid Island be? Well, after much, uh, I've been looking through my phone trying to work out which one it would be. I've settled today. It might be different tomorrow. I've settled today on St Magnus by the ISB. Um, Features music of Ken Downey. Um, Actually, Lord of All Hopefulness, which we were just talking about, that's actually on there. Um, And possibly my favourite piece for band, St Magnus. It's an epic work, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's uh, it's good to play as well, with a good band around you. Absolutely. And would that be your favourite track? Or yes, yeah. Lovely stuff. Excellent. Thank you for that, Andrew. So, Stephen Williams, bass trombone of the ISB, as your full name is, what would your album choice be, and why? Well, I'm going to take your listeners off the beaten track oh, of dangerous. brass bands, or dare I, even say, dare I even say... Listenable music. Uh, no, so dare you. If if I was going to pick one album, it would be the one which kind of gave me my real musical awakening, if you like. Sort of really gave me that addiction to just listening to music and loving it as a teenager. And that is by the renowned heavy metal band Metallica. Their self-titled oh, yeah. album, often called Black Album. Ooh, a bit of a curveball um, there. That's fantastic. And in fact, while I might sound like a curveball, it's um, up there as one of the most highest selling records of all time. It's up there with the likes of Michael Jackson. So it's popular, even though it's yeah. maybe not the mainstream. But uh, yeah, that's my choice. Nice. And uh, same question to you, so I asked Tom, uh, if we had to walk down the brass band straight and narrow path, are there any albums or even just tracks that would stand out and uh, poke you in the eye as lovely things to listen to or favourite pieces? Yeah, well, a few come to mind. I mean, to be honest, I, I rarely, if ever, listen to brass band music um, because it's sort of something I enjoy doing as a player mm. and then, but not as a listener, I sort of leave it to the band room. But one album that um, totally inspires me um, as a as a player and just generally as a listener is the ISB manuscript album, which I know has been quite a popular choice, I believe, on your show. Just yeah, fantastic album. It's brilliant. <laughs> so if I had to pick 
just a brass band album, it would be it would be that one. Yeah. No, it's a very good choice. Well, Tom's fallen asleep, so Andrew and Stephen, thank you. Oh no, he's, he is moving. Well, thank you, gents, for joining us on Fully Scored, and I hope this won't be the last to hear from all of you. But uh, thank you for your album choices, and uh, let's go and get a good night's sleep now before tomorrow's concert. Good night, good bless. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time, and just about staying awake to record that during a very busy week indeed. Is it just me, or can you smell burning? Or perhaps today's contestant has just sat down in the Bandmaster Mine hot seat. Well, Carl, welcome back to Fully Scored. It's time to put you in the very toasty seat that is the Bandmaster Mine hot seat. On a scale of 1 to W, how scared are you right now? Uh, v for very uh, scared indeed, because I know what you're like. I've heard some of the questions before. You've been particularly brutal to some of your lovely guests that have been on. I heard, I think it was last month's with, with Olav Rittman. That was just nasty questions to poor Olav, a good friend of us. Um, so go easy. Right, well, Carl Saunders, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Yes. Then your time starts now. Stephen Ponsford wrote a piece titled Crystal Redenta. In which city might you find this monument? Rio de Janeiro. Correct. How many years was Derek Kane in the ISB for? Forty. Incorrect, I'm afraid. We'll come back to the answers at the end. Who was the male vocal soloist on the ISBCD together? Don't know. Pass. Okay. And in what year was the album Together released? 2008. Correct. Eric Ball's <coughs> Serenity is a meditation on which tune? I can't remember what it's called. Crack on. We'll move on. How many cobs have been in the ISB? Three. Incorrect, I believe. What is the name of the Norman Bearcroft autobiography? Oh, I can't remember and I've seen that as well. Um, I don't know. Songs of Norman. I don't know. Okay, we'll move on. That's not the one I'm afraid. Leslie Condon's Song of the Eternal is based on which uh, the first chapter of which gospel? Um, Luke. Incorrect, I'm afraid. We just have time for one last question. Who was the principal cornet of the New York staff band for their 1982 world tour? 82. Was it Ron Wakes Norris? Correct. <coughs> Boom. Very good. Well, Carl, that gives you a grand total of three for Bandmaster One, which is not bad at all. And I'll go through the answers that you didn't quite get now. So Derek Kane was principal euphonium and in the ISB for 42 years. The male vocal soloist on the ISB CD together was Alan Jones. Uh, Eric Ball's Serenity is a meditation on It Is Well With My Soul. And I believe that there have been four cobs in the ISB. Uh, and the name of Norman Beckroff's autobiography is In Good Company. And Leslie Condon's Song of the Eternal was based on the first chapter of St John's Gospel. So there you go. Thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege chatting to you and uh, do appreciate the time that you've given up to be with us. 
Thank you, Matthew. It's been my pleasure. You've gone easy on me mostly. Thank you very much. It's very nice to chat to you, as ever. Thank you, Carl, once again. We really do appreciate you giving up your time to join us. Sparsely scored. It's time for our final segment. In last episode, Sparsely Scored, we heard the second baritone and E-flat bass lines in our mystery piece. Well, this episode, we're adding in Second Cornet. If you're new to this segment, we're going to play an 8-bar excerpt of a piece of Salvation Army music, and each episode a new part will be added. If you think you know what the piece is, then send our Facebook, Instagram or Twitter page a direct message with your guess, so as not to spoil the surprise for everyone. Thank you to all who have been in contact with guesses this month. Unfortunately, no one has guessed it correctly yet. But here is your next chance. Let's hear that once again. think you can identify the piece, then send us a direct message and we'll reveal in the next episode if you've got it correct. Now it's time to say goodbye. But not without a few thanks first, of course. Thank you first of all to our terrific guests, Carl, Jonathan, Stephen, Andrew and Tom. Thank you for your time, talents and thoughts. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, Only 10 episodes away now from being promoted to executive producer, I think. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting this podcast and the hand-picked organic playlist of related pieces that freely graze alongside this episode on wobplay.com. Thanks to the distinctive tang on the tongue after a swig of lemonade that is the band Nerds for your assistance with the band mastermind trivia. And last, but never least... Thank you to you, our listener, for tuning in. I'm convinced that nobody ever makes it this far, so if you're still here listening to this, you're my favourite. But shh, don't tell the others. See you next episode. Goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 